A video version of this podcast is available at AboundingJoy.com and also on our YouTube pages. The following Bible study is a study I've shared with the Standing Firm Bible Study class at Fairview Baptist Tabernacle in Sweetwater, Tennessee. If you're not involved in a Sunday morning Bible study group, we would love it. We'd be thrilled for you to join us this Sunday. We meet in room 216. It's in the Family Life Center every Sunday morning, 10:15 a.m. You can find more information, including ways to contact us by going to AboundingJoy.com, clicking on Standing Firm Bible Study Class, and you'll learn more about us. It might help you to take a screenshot of the screen right now. I'm glad you joined the Bible study today. I'm praying that the Lord will use it to help you stand firm in His Word and be more like Jesus. Hey guys, thanks for joining me in Bible study again today. Last week, if you were with us, we began a study of what many consider to be uh, the most profound letter, the most profound treatise that's ever been written. We primarily looked at verse 1 of Romans chapter 1, and we did an overview of the incredible life of the Apostle Paul. So look at it again. Verse 1 says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Looked at that last week. In verse 2, he adds these incredibly important words, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. The word which, of course, refers back to the end of verse 1, the gospel of God. And he's saying that this wondrous, fabulous, glorious gospel, that we looked briefly at that last week, the gospel, the good news, we often call it, the good message that God the Son actually became one of us, a man born of the Virgin Mary, was tempted just like we are, yet without sin, and despite his complete and total innocence, as a lamb, in fact, without spot or without blemish, he went to the cross as our substitute. He took our sins and accepted the consequences of our sins on himself, the wrath of God in our place. He died for us. That's what it means. He was buried. He really died. He was buried. And on the third day, he rose again from the dead and he proclaimed that all who would trust him would be forgiven. We can be forgiven our sins. We can become the children of God. We can give the, be given the gift of eternal life because of what Jesus did for us on the cross by trusting him, just by trusting him. It's a gift. So here in verse 2, he declares that God had already long ago promised this gospel beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Now, we must not just gloss over this too quickly and move on. This is huge, guys. This is huge. Please don't underestimate this. First of all, notice that Paul recognized the Holy Scriptures are the Word of God. That's why they're called the Holy Scriptures. These are writings that are holy, set apart from all other writings. Why? Because they're God's writings. They're God's Word. This is God's Word. It's not Paul's Word. It's not something men made up a few hundred years later. It's God's word through the Apostle Paul. He did not say the gospel of God which the prophets promised beforehand. That would be technically true, wouldn't it? That's not the way he said it, though. He wants to emphasize that these holy scriptures were primarily from God, not primarily from the prophets. God promised this gospel. God did it through the prophets. That's an important distinction. We don't want to miss that up. It's not the prophets primarily. It's God primarily. 
Peter underlines this same truth in 2 Peter chapter 1. He said, no prophecy was ever produced by the will of men. About as clear as you can get, isn't it? But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This is God's word, not men's word. One of the things that we Christians have to accept, and I have to tell you in advance, this is going to take some mental wrestling, but I think we have to come to grips with it, is that God planned all of this ahead of time. In fact, he planned it from before the foundation of the world. He's engineered all of it. He's providentially controlled circumstances to bring about his plan, his purpose, his will. This is what Paul wrote to the Galatians. This is also, of course, inspired by the Holy Spirit. This is in chapter 1 of Galatians. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people, so extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. Now look at verse 15. But when he who had set me apart, when? Before I was born and who called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. I did not immediately consult with anyone. He goes on and tells the story. You remember this. Paul had been a persecutor of the church, and somehow God used all those experiences in the life of Paul, even Paul's rebellion, even his anger, his rage, as sinful as they were, to bring about God's purpose. And Paul says, God set me apart for this before I was even born. So, for example, God used Isaiah to make some wonderful prophecies of the coming Messiah. Isaiah is an amazing book. God chose Isaiah from eternity past. Eventually, Isaiah was born. God knew that was going to happen. He planned for it to happen. And God engineered Isaiah's life experiences to prepare him for the work that he had for Isaiah to do. So when it came time for Isaiah to write this awesome chapter that we call, call Isaiah 53, the Holy Spirit moved through Isaiah to write it down and made sure that what needed to be written down was written down. The Spirit spoke through Isaiah. That doesn't mean he knocked Isaiah out. <laughs> it's not like Isaiah was unconscious or was doing some kind of automatic writing. No, 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 no. The writing shows the personality of Isaiah, but God preserved him from writing down any error. God had prepared him for this moment, and God spoke through his men that he had prepared before he was even born. That's what Paul's saying here. That's what God's saying through Paul. Now, since we're on this subject already this early in the book of Romans, let me just take a minute. I'm going to chase a rabbit here that tends to be a very elusive rabbit for many of us. We struggle with this. But I want you to stay with me here for a few minutes. Paul's not the only one God called before he was born and made it very clear. God wants to un underline this. We talked about Isaiah. Isaiah says it very specifically in chapter 49. And as this chapter begins... We're thinking of Isaiah himself, but as he continues, we realize Isaiah is raising this to a higher plane. He's talking about the Messiah Jesus here. He said, listen to me, O coastlands. Give attention, you people from afar. The Lord called me when? From the womb, from the body of my mother, he named my name. A few verses later, he said, and now the Lord says, he who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God's become my strength. When? From the womb. God said this to Jeremiah, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. 
And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Do you hear what God's saying here? <laughs> so clear. Paul wrote this to the Ephesians, talking about all of us. Even as he chose us in him, when? Before the foundation of the world, he chose us. That we should be holy and blameless before him. Listen to this. Some of us don't like these verses, but we need to face it. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. And then there's this famous passage in chapter 8 of Romans, which maybe someday we'll finally get to. The rate we're going, I don't know, but hopefully we will. Verse 29, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, there are lots of verses like these. But verses like these are very hard for us. And many of us, we want to try to explain it you know, away. We read them, we kind of recoil. We say, wait a minute, Lord. You said, that verse we read a few minutes ago in Ephesians, you said you predestined us for adoption as sons. Are you saying that I really had no choice in trusting Jesus? I mean, I was just predestined to do it. Am I just your little robot toy, God? Is that all this is? And so we're tackling here a very difficult, thorny issue that Christians sometimes don't like to talk about because we may disagree. We may not see the same thing, see these things the same way. Uh, and, and it's okay. We can have different ways of trying to tackle these things. But listen, guys, I'm too old now to shrink back from controversy. <laughs> It's never been my inclination anyway. <laughs> you know what? Also, I'll chase another rabbit. I'm I'm blessed to be married to a wife who's wired pretty much the same way I am. <laughs> so when I get into something controversial, instead of shrinking back in horror at what I'm saying, uh, she tends to just wade right in there with me. I love it. <laughs> Doesn't always mean she and I are always agree either, you know, we, but we both tend to think it's better to be honest and grapple with these things and, and to be afraid of them. And if, and if God changes our mind, that's fine. But if we're going to work our way through the book of Romans, <laughs> we're going to find sooner or later we have to deal with this kind of stuff. Paul gets into this in a big way. So we might as well just go ahead and belly flop into the deep end right now. How's that sound? Okay, here we go. I've heard many, many Christians try to reconcile this thorny issue of predestination and foreordination by appealing to the foreknowledge of God. Now, I'm sure I've done that myself. Stay with me here. Try to stay with me. Think with me now. What people will say is, well, God didn't really foreordain it to be this way. He just looked down through history and foreknew it by his omniscience. You know, he has foreknowledge. So he saw the decision I would make. So I was free to do whatever I wanted, but he knew I would what I would do from eternity past. Now, there's a lot of truth in that. But I'm just not sure it really does much to solve the problem, guys. Stay with me. Several years ago now, I wish I knew exactly when this was, but I heard the great Presbyterian preacher, D. James Kennedy. Any of you know Dr. Kennedy? He was an awesome man of God. But he was trying to help his congregation see this. And he said, I want to ask you guys a question. Asked this of his congregation in a sermon. But he said, I'm speaking especially to those of you who believe that God's foreknowledge explains predestination. He said, I want you to raise your hands. How many of you believe that even before creation, God knew you were going to be here today in this service. Raise your hands. 
And of course, just about everybody raised their hands. I mean, I would have raised my hand, wouldn't you? I mean, God's omniscient. He knows all things, present, past, and future. There's nothing in our past, nothing now that's going on right this moment, nothing in our future that he doesn't know all the details. He's omniscient. That's what that means. So Kennedy, trying to help his congregation realize you really can't separate foreordination from foreknowledge, simply said, okay, then. That's settled. <laughs> Most of us believe that God knew from eternity past that we'd be here today. Now, let me ask you another question. What if you didn't show up? <laughs> and there was a long, dramatic pause of silence as he let that sink into his congregation's minds. And his point was, if God foreknew something, then by necessity, it's also foreordained. He was saying you can't separate predestination from foreknowledge. By necessity, these two things go together. They must. But watch out. Stay with me all the way through this, guys. The logical conclusion that many come to is, well, if that's true, then I don't have any decisions to make. God's already decided it all. And if we're not careful, that will lead to a kind of depressing fatalism. You know what I mean? Now, I'm going to try to share with you how I think it works. And this may or may not be very satisfying to you. You don't have to agree with me. And, and maybe someday God will change my mind about how I see all of this. But I believe we have to accept, even though it's, it starts to say difficult for our brains, I probably should say impossible. The word's impossible. We can't figure it out. As part of our faith walk. There really are two distinct perspectives on the decisions of life, all the decisions of life. From one perspective, I'm going to call that God's perspective. From God's perspective, everything that's ever going to happen is settled. David said it this way a few weeks ago. He said, God's outside time. That's true, isn't it? What's present, past, and future to us just is to God. Everything just is. God knows all the details of all of our futures just like it's now. And that means all the details, the tiniest details. What am I going to get for lunch? I have no idea. How many bites am I going to take? I don't know. How many times am I going to chew each bite? I don't know. God does. For the rest of my life, he knows those things. It's, it's all settled as far as he's concerned. He knows how many hairs are on my head. He knows how many are going to be there tomorrow after I take a shower and comb my hair. And the day after that, and the day after that, all through my life. He knows everyone who's going to trust him. He knows everyone who's not going to trust him. And from his perspective, it's all settled. That's God's perspective. Now, listen, guys, you got to stay with me here. From God's perspective, everything is foreordained. Here's my problem. My little brain doesn't like that. God will not allow me, and in truth, I cannot live life from that perspective. I am not omnipotent. I am not omnipresent. I am not omniscient. God is. I'm not God. And when I try to think and live from that perspective, I will end up saying, I'm not free at all. Lord, you created me to be a robot. You've eliminated my ability to make decisions. You've made all the decisions in advance. But most of us, I think, intuitively know that's ridiculous. We must make decisions and we must live with the consequences of those decisions. God commands us to do that. He requires it. He commands it. He demands it. He doesn't give us an option. For example, you might ask me something that has the potential to embarrass me. And at that moment, I have a choice to make. I can tell you the truth or I can lie. 
Now, I could say, well, whichever I choose, God's foreordained it. So I'm kind of helpless here. This is, I'm just like a robot. I mean, this is all, it's just, it's all settled. Might as well take the easy way out. I'll just lie. Guys, listen to me. That's Satan trying to get me to act like I'm God. That's what he tried to get Eve to do in the garden. I am not God. So God tells me, Steve, you have a real decision to make. It's not a pretend decision. It's a real decision. All your decisions are real decisions. You must make the decision. And Steve, you will be responsible for it. You'll have to live with the consequences of whatever you decide. And that's true for every decision you'll ever make, whether they seem big or small to you, especially the biggest one of all. What are you going to do with Jesus? Each one of us is responsible. We have to make that decision. Now, I could say, but God, you've already foreordained it. And he might say, the decision you're going to make has been foreordained from the foundation of the world. And I could say, well, then it's not a real decision. <laughs> and God should say, yes, it is. It's very real. You have to make it and you will have to live with the consequences. You're responsible. And I could say, Lord, that didn't make any sense to me. And he could say, that's because my ways are higher than your ways as the heavens are higher than the earth. Now, make the decision. And I could say, well, God, I wish you hadn't told me all this. And he could say, well, I'm a God of truth. What I've told you is the truth. The problem is your little brain is not big enough for it. Now, make a decision. <laughs> Does this help you at all, guys? I don't know. If it doesn't, I'm sorry. But it helps me. We have no choice. Stay with me but to hold the absolute truth of the sovereignty of God over all his creation, every decision ever made by anybody who can make a decision, at the same time that we hold the absolute truth of the responsibility of men as free moral agents to make decisions that have consequences that we must live with. Both of those are true. In my mind, both of them fall under the absolute sovereignty of God. I don't think we must, we must ever minimize God's sovereignty over his creation in order to try to make us free. No, no, no. God is sovereign, but we are also free moral agents and we have to make those decisions. So God sovereignly chose to reveal major parts of his eternal plan through his Old Testament prophets. He knew it was going to happen. He, he established it was going to happen and he planned it from the beginning. Now, the effect on us shouldn't be, well, this doesn't make sense to me, God. I don't like that. The effect should be, God, you're amazing. He's making sure that any of us who's willing to look can see what an awesome God he is and can realize this book has to be his word. Nobody can make these prophecies come true but God. At Cross Creek, in the Warriors of Christ course that I've told you about before, it's all online. You can see this on YouTube videos if you want to. But one of the strong evidences that we point out is that, that we have that the Bible really is God's word is the evidence of fulfilled prophecy. It's powerful evidence. Listen to what God says about this in Isaiah chapter 46. He says, I am God. There is no other. I am God. There's none like me declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done saying my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. That's God. Now, you might be wondering, well, if God really did prophesy the future in the Bible, if there really are prophecies, and believe me, there are plenty, but you might wonder, how many are there, I wonder? How many prophecies are there in the Bible? Well, we talk about that in Veritas as well, but, and there may be more than you might have guessed. 
There was a great Bible scholar who died in 1979 by the name of J. Barton Payne. And J. Barton Payne wrote a book called the Encyclopedia of Biblical Prophecy. Encyclopedia of Biblical Prophecy. In that book, he listed 1,239 prophecies in the Old Testament and 578 prophecies in the New Testament. So he listed 1,817 prophecies in the Bible. Now, that was his list. I have seen where other scholars say, well, actually, there are more than that. I've read that there may be about 2,500 prophecies in the Bible, roughly 2,000 of them already fulfilled. So maybe Payne overlooked a few hundred of them. I don't know. But in any case, there are a lot of them. You get the point. <laughs> well, from time to time, mathematicians have gotten in on this. They've tried to figure out mathematical probabilities that these things could have just been fulfilled by sheer chance. And believe me, there's no way these things could have been fulfilled by mere chance. When mathematicians try to do that, they come up with numbers that are ridiculously impossible. I mean, improbable, but totally absurdly improbable. I mean, let me give you some examples. One of them said, if you added up all the atoms in the known universe and then picked one atom, one atom in the whole universe, the probability of picking that particular atom would be far greater than the probability of these prophecies being fulfilled by sheer chance. One major Bible scholar I read said there uh, he took 61 major prophecies of Jesus in the Old Testament. And he said the probability of 48 of them coming to pass by chance is one out of 10 to the 157th power. Now, if you've not been in math for a while, those numbers will just kind of go over your head. But and this may be hard for you to absorb. But we're talking about powers of 10 here. These are these are exponential numbers here. They're, they're approximately 10 to the 80th atoms in the known universe. So 10 to the 157th power would be about the number of atoms that would exist if there were as many universes as there are atoms in our universe. Now, that should be boggling your mind, and you can't wrap your brain around it, I understand, but it just gives us a little bit of a glimmer of how totally impossible this is. The probability that only eight of them would come to pass by chance is one out of 10 to the 17th. That's a much smaller number. We can wrap our range around that a little bit. If you covered the state of Texas with silver dollars two feet deep, you'd have 10 to the 17th silver dollars. Now, the probability then of these of just eight of them coming true would be if you painted one of them red, one of those silver dollars, blindfolded me, took me in a helicopter where I, without me knowing exactly where I'm going, you know, drop me down in Texas and say, now, you can go anywhere you want to in the state of Texas, pick out the red one, sure chance on the first draw, the probability I could do that would be 1 in 10 to the 17th power. You get the point? These things aren't going to happen by chance. It's absurd. It's supernatural. It, it's God. God's the only one that can do this kind of thing. Now, all of these hundreds and hundreds of prophecies that are in the Bible are amazing. And it's interesting to study fulfilled prophecy. But there are three of them that always come to my mind as being extremely powerful in my own heart. Three of them that I share with the Cross Creek kids in a Warriors of Christ class. And they always blow me away. One of them is Psalm 22. We're not going to look at that today. But it's a fascinating chapter of prophecy. Another one is Daniel chapter 9. We're not going to look at that either. But God gave Daniel a prophecy that would have enabled Nehemiah or anyone after the time of Nehemiah to know the exact year of the crucifixion of Jesus. If you're interested in some of the details, you can look at those videos that are on YouTube. But there's a third prophecy that I like to share with the kids and, and warriors of Christ that I do want us to spend a little time with today uh, here. It's, it's again from the prophet Isaiah. And remember, Isaiah wrote these things about 700 years before Jesus was born in Bethlehem. This is an incredible prophecy, I think. 
The passage begins in Isaiah chapter 52, verse 13, and it goes for 15 verses, which means to the end of chapter 53. I think it's an amazing prophecy. So let's spend a few minutes at least looking through the high points of this prophecy. It starts like this. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. And he's talking about Jesus. He's saying Jesus is going to be high and lifted up and he's going to be exalted. And of course, Jesus is high and lifted up and exalted. As many were astonished at you, and then he tells us why they will be astonished. His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. Now, this is a prophecy of the horrific beating and physical abuse that Jesus is going to endure. It may not be clear to you right now that that's a clear prophecy, but when you put all these verses together, you'll see what I mean. Verse 15, so shall he sprinkle many nations. The, the picture there is he sprinkles people with his blood. This is a reference to the sprinkling of the blood on the mercy seat on the day of atonement. And here we see a prophecy that Jesus will be our substitutionary atonement. Now this gets more clear as we read on through this prophecy. This will not just be for Jews. He says he will sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them, they see, and that which they have not heard, they understand. So he's prophesying the time will come when the greatest kings on earth will marvel at Jesus. And of course they have, and that will be expanded even more when he comes back the second time, of course. Verse 1 of chapter 53 says, Who has believed our report? And to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? Now that's an interesting question as he continues this prophecy has an interesting prophetic answer because the Jewish people to whom this prophecy was written, of course, Isaiah was writing to Jewish people, did not believe the report for the most part. They misinterpreted it. Eventually, it's revealed primarily to Gentiles. So he's saying, you need to think about who's, who's even going to believe this. Verse 2, for he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of a dry ground. He has no form nor comeliness and when we shall see him, there's no beauty that we should desire him. From a human perspective, he's saying Jesus will not be particularly desirable. Ordinary looking Jewish guy. And of course, after he's beaten and abused, he was so repulsive to look at that nobody wanted to look at him hardly. Three, he's despised and rejected of men. Now, I think this is a prophecy that points to Gethsemane. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. We hid as it were our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Most of the Jewish leaders of Jesus' day despised him, demanded his execution. Remember when they came to arrest him in the garden, we're told that even his closest friends, his disciples, fled and forsook him. Verse 4, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. That began in Gethsemane all the way to the cross. Jesus was bearing our griefs, carrying our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. Outwardly, it looked like he was the guilty one. He was the one being punished by God, smitten by God, cursed by God. But verse 5 says, but he was wounded. And by the way, that Hebrew word could be translated pierced. He was pierced or wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised. For our iniquities, the chastisement of our peace was upon him. We received the peace of God, but he paid for it. And with his stripes, 
we are healed. In other words, Jesus took our place on the cross. He paid for our transgressions, our iniquities, and his punishment, his chastisement brought us peace and healing. This is unthinkable to the ancient Jews. They didn't understand all of this. Verse six, powerful verse. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. That's pretty clear, isn't it? We're all like sheep. We wander like sheep. We're all sinners. We're all self-centered and rebellious. And the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. Jesus took our iniquity on himself. This is an amazing verse pointing to the, to the substitutionary atonement on the cross. Before we go on, let me just share this with you. For many years, I was an evangelism explosion teacher trainer. I don't know if you're familiar with evangelism explosion or not, but for many years, back in the 1970s and 80s and 90s, it was a, a, a way of sharing the gospel that many, many Christians use, especially in our Baptist churches. It was actually developed by D. James Kennedy at Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church, but for many years, more Baptists use it than Presbyterians, I'm, I'm totally convinced. But it's a wonderful way to share the gospel. If you'd like to learn how to do it or to see what it is, I've, again, got some videos that I put together for the Warriors of Christ class. You can watch them if you're, if you're interested, and you can learn how to share the gospel more effectively. They're all on YouTube. But my favorite illustration in the whole presentation is based on this verse. It's called the Record Book of Sins illustration. You may have seen it before, but I'm going to share it with you right now. I just think it's so good. And you can use it yourself if you want to learn how to do this. It's pretty easy to put it together. It teaches so much about the gospel, though. So the way it goes is this. This, this book that I just picked up is an algebra book. And uh, I'm going to pretend, though, that instead of an algebra book, that it's a record book of my life. In particular, it's a record book of my sins. All the sins that I've ever committed are written here. So every time I told a lie... It's written in this book. Every time I lost my temper, it's written in this book. Every time I lusted after someone who isn't my wife, I've, it's written in this book. Every time I've acted selfishly or lazily, it's all written in this book. And, and, I'm, and it just goes on. and It's a very embarrassing book. On and on and on. In fact, if it were a record of my life, it'd be a lot thicker than this. More like an unabridged dictionary, maybe. <laughs> now, let's suppose this, this is all my sin. And let's suppose this hand right here represents me. This is me. And I'm carrying this load of sin around. It's a heavy load of sin. It presses down on me. If I get serious about realizing it and thinking about it, it should make me feel horribly guilty because I am horribly guilty. It makes me feel embarrassed. It's a weight I'm carrying around. And not only that, the Bible teaches that my sin is what separates me from God. This hand represents God. So I'm down here carrying this load of sin, and I can't have fellowship with God because of this sin that separates me from God. I can't fix that problem. I can't do anything about my sin. But God fixed the problem. And the way he fixed it is this. God the Son became a man, just like me. And he lived on this earth to become a 30-year-old man, and he never, ever sinned. Never. He never once yielded. He was tempted, the Bible says, just like we are, but he did not sin at all. So when he came to the end of his life on this earth and died, he was just as innocent as the day he was born. He did not sin. I did. But the Bible teaches that even though all we like sheep have gone astray, we've turned everyone to his own way. The Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. 
So when he took that, my, when he went to the cross, he took my sin on himself and he accepted the wrath of God against my sin on himself, even though he didn't deserve it. And he died for that sin. He paid for that sin. That's why he came. And because he was totally innocent, when he was buried, death couldn't hold him down. And he's taken that sin away. He rose again from the grave and took my sin away. And now if I will trust him, that sin's gone and I can have fellowship with God because of what he did for me on that cross. I can have fellowship. My sin's gone as far as the east is from the west, buried in the depths of the sea. I can have fellowship with Jesus because of what he did for me on the cross. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. But the Lord's laid on him the iniquity of us all. It's an awesome verse. Verse 7 says, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Look at Matthew chapter 27. When he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. He's fulfilling this prophecy of Isaiah 53. Verse 13, and Pilate said to him, do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge. So the governor was greatly amazed. Jesus is fulfilling his prophecy. He's brought as a lamb to the slaughter. Again, all those sacrificial lambs in the Old Testament are pointing to the ultimate sacrificial lamb, Jesus. He's brought as the lamb, the lamb of God. He is the lamb. And as a sheep before her shearers is dumb, so he opens not his mouth, emphasizing what he's already said. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. They arrested Jesus and tried him on false charges. Obviously, terrible sin. They, they, they accused him of things he didn't do. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? His generation, his peers, the people in his day, for the most part, did not realize he was cut off out of the land of the living. That means he was killed, right? That's what it means to be cut off out of the land of the living. He was killed. Why? For their sins, for their transgressions. So clear. His grave was assigned with wicked men. You remember Jesus was crucified between two thieves. Thieves were often crucified. Jesus was crucified as a thief. Therefore, it was expected he would be buried with the thieves. But this verse goes on. Yet, he was with a rich man in his death. Talking about Joseph of Arimathea. He was a wealthy man. And he took the body of Jesus and buried it in his own personal tomb. It's all prophesied right here. Because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. Again, prophesying Jesus would be sinless. Verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He was crushed in Gethsemane and on the cross. Do you know what the word Gethsemane means? Where Jesus sweated his great drops of blood. You remember this? Where he was agonizing before they arrested him. Gethsemane means oil press. You know what happened at the oil press? They would take olives and they would put it in the oil press and they would put huge amounts of pressure on that olive with a monstrous stone to press the oil out of the olive. And Jesus is telling us that's what's going to happen to him. He's going to be crushed in, in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. There it is again. Jesus offered himself as our sacrificial lamb for our guilt, for our sin. But look at these next words. This is so important. Yet he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. What? What? <laughs> 
you hear what he's saying? In verse 8, he's already told us that he's cut off from the land of the living. He's killed. In verse 9, we see that he's buried. And yet here in verse 10, he's telling us after he makes an offering for our sin, after he's killed, he'll be raised because he'll see his offspring. That's us. He'll prolong his days. He's not going to stay dead. Verse 11, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. The New Testament teaches us the fulfillment of that. Jesus imputes his righteousness. He's the only one who ever lived a righteous life, but he imputes his righteousness to us. God justifies us, declares us to be righteous in his sight because of what Jesus did for us on the cross. It's all prophesied right here. And he shall bear their iniquities. He's underlining that by repeating it. And then look at verse 12. Therefore, I will give him the many as a portion, and he'll receive the mighty as spoil, because he submitted himself to death and was counted among the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. And again, verse 12 prophesies his resurrection again. After he submits himself to death, after he's cut off out of the land of the living, after he's buried, God says, I will give him the many as a portion. He'll receive the mighty as spoil. We're part of that portion. All of us who trust in Jesus, we're part of it. We're a gift to Jesus. But we couldn't be given to him if he were dead. <laughs> he's prophesying the resurrection of Jesus. So Isaiah 53 is an amazing prophecy of what Jesus will endure at Gethsemane and on the cross at Golgotha in our place and of his burial and of his resurrection and it's written 700 years before it happened. And you know what? For the benefit of people who might read this and then look at the life of Jesus and say, well, it's clearly pointing to Jesus. No way around that. And they'll say, well, that's too specific. It must have been written after Jesus had done all this and then maybe gone back and, and written into the book of Isaiah. It couldn't have been written before Jesus was born. So you know how God fixed that? He allowed archaeologists to discover what we now call the Dead Sea Scrolls. Remember the Dead Sea Scrolls? They were first discovered in 1946 and then succeeding years after that. They were found in these very cool, dry caves in the area called Qumran. It's the northwest corner of the Dead Sea. And over the next 10 years, from 1946 to 1956, they discovered thousands of manuscripts in, in 12 of those caves in that area. Some of those manuscripts were written three to 400 years before Jesus was born. Some of them were just fragments. Some of them are very complete. And one of the earliest manuscripts discovered was, guess what? The Great Isaiah Scroll, part of the Dead Sea Scrolls, found in 1947. It's a full manuscript of the book of Isaiah, dated at the very latest 100 years before Jesus was born. Some people say, some of the scholars say it's probably 200 years before the birth of Jesus. And you know what? It's pretty much exactly the same book of Isaiah we have today, all 66 chapters. It wasn't like somebody wrote something in much later after Jesus had already come and died and risen again. Somebody wrote the story. No, 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 no. This was already prophesied. And, and so God wanted us to realize this was a prophecy made long before Jesus was born in Bethlehem. I once had a Jewish friend. His name was George Berger. He came to know Christ when a friend read these scriptures to him and said, George, who do you think I'm, these, this, these things are talking about? And George said, well, it's talking about Jesus, of course. And his friend said, you're right. He said, do you know where I'm reading from, George? And George said, well, I guess you're reading from the New Testament. 
And his friend said, no, 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 George. I'm reading from Isaiah. I'm reading from your Bible. The Jews call it the Tanakh. We call it the Old Testament. And that was enough for George. He told me, he said, he said I, I, I realized that couldn't have happened by chance. He said, I became a Christian after that. He became a follower of Jesus. The prophecy was just so plain. He gave his life to Christ. That's how God used his word to bring George to Jesus. And he's used it in other people's lives the same way. So I feel confident when Paul wrote verse 2 of Romans chapter 1, he had Isaiah 53 in his mind. A lot of other prophecies too, but certainly Isaiah 53. God has written his book in such a way that for anyone who really wants to know the truth about Jesus, you can know it. If anyone honestly says, now I know there are dishonest skeptics out there. There are people that claim they'd like to believe they could, but they don't really, they won't investigate it. They don't want to know the truth. Nah, 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 I'm not interested. Yeah. But if you're honest and you want to know the truth and you say, I'd like to believe in Jesus, it just seems a little too much. It seems too far-fetched, too unreasonable, too unlikely. God has provided for people like that. Through the years, there have been many, many people who doubted God's word could be true, but they were honest skeptics. And I can name a bunch of them, but some of them became quite famous later on because of their conversion. But God has, in essence, said, look, if you're honest, if you're honestly searching for the truth, I've left you plenty of evidence. You can go check it out. And that would include archaeology in our day. That would include the little molecules of life that he created in such a way that it's obvious that they had to be created. They could not have evolved. The amazing fine-tuning of the universe, it makes it clear the universe had to be have a creator. The amazing evidence for the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, we'll look at some of that a little later in here too. The second law of thermodynamics, if you've never heard of it, you ought to be familiar with it. The history of the early church has been preserved for us. The early Bible manuscripts that we have, and of course, fulfilled prophecy. Lots of evidence for anybody that's, that's serious. So Paul was set apart for the gospel of God, which God promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Do you remember when Jesus had just freshly risen from the dead and two of his disciples were walking away from Jerusalem to a town about seven miles down the road uh, named Emmaus? This, this account's given to us in Luke chapter 24. Jesus came upon these men looking like an ordinary man to them, and they didn't recognize him. It's one of my favorite passages in the Bible. In verse 27, Luke writes this, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he, Jesus, risen from the dead, interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. I used to have a print of this painting hanging on the wall where I studied. It was always one of my favorites. The name of this painting is The Road to Emmaus. It was painted by a Swiss artist named Robert Zund in 1877. But it's easy for me to look at it and think of Luke 24, 27. I can imagine Jesus walking with these two men over a period of a few hours, just walking through the Old Testament with them, going from passage to passage to passage, showing them how the Old Testament was designed to point people to himself. And I feel quite certain he spent some time in Isaiah 53, don't you? <laughs> Someday we're going to get to talk to those guys. <laughs> don't you think that'll be a fascinating account? Hey, hey, God chose not to put this in his word, but we're interested. Tell us this story. Tell us what, what, what all did Jesus tell you? What all did he share? I mean, it's going to be fascinating. We're talking about the glorious gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets.
in the Holy Scriptures. This is the gospel, which Paul, and in a very real way, we too, all of us who trust Jesus, were set apart. This is a glorious thing. We serve an amazing God. Let's pray. Father, you're awesome. You're amazing. And every time we get into your word in a serious way, you just, it's all, we always have the potential of you just blowing us away with your truth. Lord, thank you. Thank you for giving us this passage of scripture we're looking at. Thank you for the book of Romans. And even as we just kind of mess around with the introduction here, you're blowing us away. Lord, thank you for the way you reveal this gospel, even in the Old Testament, through your prophets. You just, you just have shown yourself again and again to be a mighty God, an omniscient God, an omnipotent God, a powerful God. You are worthy of worship and praise. You've given us an incredible gospel. And there's no excuse for us not just looking to you and trusting you and worshiping you and giving you lots of glory. So, Lord, help us to learn these things well. Help us to internalize these things. And help us to pass it on as you give us opportunity to others that they might also come to know Jesus and come to see you as the one who can save them, who can redeem them and give them life now and forever and forgive our sins. Thank you so much for what you've done. We give you praise. We run out of words, but we give you praise the best we know how in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen.